We truly are outnumbered this morning. There's, you stand up here and you realize that there's a lot more little people than there are big people this morning. This morning, we're going to begin a journey. Uh, and if I do my job, I will help you in your struggle against sin more than I ever have in the last nine years. That's what the subject of these passages are. And I know that's the heartbeat of everyone in this room, that we really want to be successful and have victory in our struggle against sin. And these are the passages that teach us how to do that. And so I want to take my time as we go through these passages. And today, really, it's just an introduction uh, to Romans chapter 6. We will get into just a few passages, but I really want to lay out to you the importance as well as the process of what we've been talking about. Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, I want to repeat some of the things that I said last week because this works, uh, amazingly enough, a little bit like algebra. Five, if you don't understand what he's doing in chapter five, you're not going to understand the illustration in chapter six. So I want to go back and repeat some of those things. And then many of you, I do realize we're actually here, but trust me, if I said last week was the first time you heard these things, it's going to be a little while before they're written on your heart. And so you need to hear these things more than once. But what Paul did in chapter five that's so important for us to understand in chapter six is he drew the comparison between Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a comparison that, again, will carry into six because he showed how we were in union with Adam when we were born but then through the gospel, we were in union or made one with Christ. And we need to understand how God works in relationship to union because that glorious union of the gospel in six is going to radically change how you do battle with the sin in your life. Now, let's go back and think about the union that he formed between those two men or that he illustrated. And we talked about how we were in union with Adam and how Adam affects us is not, let me go through the knots first, is not by way of example. In other words, when we saw Adam in the garden, let's say we watched that on a little YouTube clip and we go, okay, all right, well, I understand what happened in the garden through Adam. He doesn't affect us by becoming our example and we go, well, you know, every day I do the same thing Adam did. And it's just repeated over and over and over. I hear the Word of God, I know the Word of God, I reject the Word of God, and I do what I want. That's not how Adam influences us, not by way of example. And the reason I know that is we're not saved by the example of Christ. We don't look at the Lord Jesus and go, okay, now I know how to act. I'm going to act like Jesus, and if I act like Jesus, then the Lord will save me. That is not good news. That's horrible news because I can never spend one day acting like Jesus. Jesus was not my example. OK, likewise, when we go back to Adam, Adam did not just affect us because he's our father, so to speak. We all came through the line of Adam. And so Adam didn't merely just cause something to be inherited in our lives. In other words, my kids look a lot like me and Paige. They inherited our traits. It was passed down on them. And you can look at some of them, and some of them look a little more like their mom. Some of them look a little more like their dad, and that's the way it goes. They inherited something from us. It was passed down. Now, most Southern Baptists fall right here, and they say, this is how Adam affected us because we merely inherited from Adam a sinful nature. That's true, but that's not the total of it. Because we don't merely inherit anything from Christ that saves us. 
I am not a Christian because I inherited Christianity from my mom and my dad. I'm not a Christian because something was passed down through some familial line in the Lord Jesus and eventually made its way to me, and so therefore I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I'm an American. I'm not a Christian because I'm a member of a church. I'm not a Christian because I'm a conservative. None of that was passed down. None of that has an effect on me whatsoever. Therefore, you can't just look at Adam and say, well, I inherited something from him, and therefore I became a sinner. That's not what the text says. The text says that Adam made us a sinner in Romans 5. So how was it that Adam affected us? Well, Adam affected us because he was our representative. Julie's kids got this. I just found out before the service. The kids were talking about this last week. We inherited Adam's sin. We inherited Adam's guilt. We inherited Adam's condemnation. We inherited Adam's death. You can move from Genesis 3 into 4 and you see that we inherited Adam's death. It was passed down to us. He was our example. And yes, it came through us through the familial line. But we all were there in Adam when Adam fell because we were in Adam or in union with Adam. How do I know that's true? Because I can look at the example of Christ and you do understand the only way that I'm saved is because I've been placed in union with Christ. When he walked in righteousness, that righteousness has now become my own. When he paid the penalty for sin, that became my pay the payment of my penalty for my sin in my life. You see, it's because of my union in Christ that I'm saved. God looks at the Lord Jesus and understands that my sin has been atoned for and paid for. God looks at Jesus and He sees that the righteousness that's required of me has been given to me through His Son. You see, Jesus represents us on that great day, just like Adam represented us our whole life until we met Jesus. That's how unions work. So we were in Adam, and when we came to faith in Christ, we've been placed in Jesus. And I made the comparison between a wedding. We have a far better husband now in Jesus because He was faithful to us. He provided for us. He has protected us just like a faithful husband should. Now, a couple other things that were tied together before we move on. Ad, uh, or rather, Paul, not Adam. Paul tied some things together in Romans 5 that we're going to see in, in Romans 6. He tied together sin and death and condemnation. You can't separate that line. Where there's sin, we know that there's death because Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. And that death is not merely physical, but it's spiritual. That's why it's condemnation. So in other words, while you're in Adam, this worked in your life. Sin, death, condemnation, and you could do nothing about it. But along comes the second Adam, or Christ, and he draws a whole new line. Now he's tied together life, righteousness, and justification, and you can't break that line. Meaning this morning, if you're in Christ, there's three words that define you that will never escape you, and that is life, righteousness, and justification. He drew a whole new lifeline for us. But you can't separate those things. One of those lines define you this morning. You are either in sin and therefore you will die and you will be condemned. Or you're in life because you're in Christ. And you will be justified because righteousness defines who you are as a person. Now hang on to that idea of union because you're going to need it in just a minute. 
Now let me go back to and just briefly make one sentence statement about Romans, the first four chapters, because you need to understand what Paul has done and now what he's about to do. In the first four chapters, Paul has laid out or established rather the fact that we are justified by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And if you don't get anything else this morning, if you tune me out, you need to understand that. You are declared innocent, not guilty, if you're in Christ. Because if you have Jesus, God looks at the person and work at Jesus on your behalf. And even though we have committed sin and we're guilty of sin, He looks at the payment for sin in His Son, and He says you're not guilty. And you spend the rest of eternity in the presence of God. But now as he moves into the next few chapters, namely 6, 7, and 8, Paul is going to explain to us a whole new word, not justification, but now he's going to talk about sanctification. And I'll explain that or define that word for you in just a second, but you need to understand in Paul's mind, and there is no new chapter. He didn't write chapter 6. It's not even really a new subject because they're not so easily separated. Justification and sanctification are tied together too. In other words, I can talk about them separately, but they are bound eternally. If you've been justified, you will be sanctified. The first is a guarantee of the second. And as we say, the second is evidence of the first. In other words, if you've trusted Jesus, you're going to be made like Jesus. It is an absolute guarantee because it's the work of God. And if you've been made like Jesus, we can have confidence that you've trusted Jesus because those two, again, are inseparably tied. Now, sanctification is a word that if I just went around the room and I said, okay, define that, you might struggle to define that. So let me help you with that this morning. It's, it's a word that's used just a couple of times in Scripture, not a whole lot in Scripture, but it means simply this, to be set apart, to be dedicated. So in other words, in relationship to God, God took you, let's say He took Rob out from a sea of people and He sanctified him by setting him apart for the purposes of God. In other words, God says, you're mine. And He sets him apart. Now the root word for sanctified is holy. Watch this. And because a holy God said, no, you're mine, and He set him apart for His purposes, by doing that, God just made Rob holy. He sanctified him and set him apart for God's own purposes. So when we talk about the process of sanctification, you don't hear that a lot in Scripture, but you need to understand that you're being made holy because you're going to spend eternity with a holy God and to be in a relationship with a holy God, you've got to be holy. God's not going to have a relationship with somebody who is unholy. And so He does that through sanctification. But in the text, just think, just like I said, justification, not guilty. Sanctification is your mind. God takes you and He sets you apart for His own purpose. And His purpose is to make you like Himself. Now, I always told you, I think there's a better word because sanctification, that particular word is used a couple of times in the gospel, but it's not sanctification, it's transfiguration. In other words, when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, He was transfigured or He was changed. In that text, it's the word metamorphosis. Y'all remember that word? Remember that word in school? What goes through the process of metamorphosis? Butterflies, right? 
And so we look at this word metamorphosis and we begin to understand what God is doing through the process of sanctification. A couple other places, and if you're taking notes, jot this passage down. 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is what Paul says there. We all with unveiled faces are being transformed into the image from glory to glory, just as from the Father. In other words, through the gospel, you're being transformed or you're going through the process of metamorphosis because God's restoring the image in you that you lost when you fell. You're being made like God. And when we come into Romans 6, he calls that the process of sanctification. I've made you holy, but listen, I am currently making you holy. I'm changing who you are. That's one of the reasons that I get so frustrated when you talk to people and they say, and they respond, when you talk to them about Christ, they go, well, that's just how I am. I understand that, but you shouldn't say that as a Christian. I don't care how you are, you're not going to stay that way. Through the power of the gospel, God is changing who you are, and that change becomes evidence that you're, in fact, in Christ. And nothing's more of a blessing. You know, people say things nice, nice all the time to us, but there's nothing more than a blessing for somebody to come up to you and say, man, I've just noticed you're such a different person than who you were a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. I really don't even recognize you. I'm going to get away from my notes, and I don't have time to get away from my notes, but I think this is useful. Before Christ, a temper is what defined me. And I think I've told you this before in the last nine years. I was horrible. I had holes in the wall and at home because I got mad and punched a hole in the sheetrock. My dad left it because I had to walk by it every day to remind me of my temper. I got mad in a friend's car and punched a hole in their dash. I was just full of rage. I was ticked off about everything. And then I came to faith in Christ. And God began to change who I was. And fast forward 10 years later, I'm standing in a pharmacy next to a young lady who's my technician and we're working and a customer came in and just blew their top and asked out in anger and you know, said all these things to us and I didn't respond. I was patient and kind, believe it or not. And I said after they left, boy, I almost got mad. And she said, have you ever gotten mad a day in your life? I started crying because I realized what the gospel had changed in my life. And I got overwhelmed with thankfulness. That's what we're talking about. You can't take credit for it, but it's exactly what God's doing in your life. And for Him to be able to do that in your life, He's got to deal with the sin in your life. So He had to deal with the anger in, your, in my life. You see? See how this thing works? So when we talk about Romans 6, 7, and 8, I'm going to talk to you about the process of the things that God does to change who you are to make you more like His Son. So that's what Paul's talking about when we turn to this Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. But first, and this is the part, uh, I was telling Tyler, I really need to make this sermon shorter, but this is the part that I, I thought I need to cut out, but I'm not going to cut out because it's, it's so critical for you to understand. Okay? Now to catch up with me, you turn to 1 Corinthians, and I'll be there in just a second. It's just one book to the right. It's not hard to find. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5.
Now, I love this. This is the kind of stuff I love because I like the how-to. And I'm going to show you the process of how-to that God works in your life, changing you and making you more like His Son. And I'm going to, to do that, I'm going to take you back to a passage that we were talking about Wednesday night because it's so critical that you understand what we as a church have been commanded to do. Remember the Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, God changes you through teaching. First, there's the conversion, and that's why we have the reference to baptism, but then second comes teaching. How boring is that? And what has fallen away from the pulpit today? Teaching, which is the very initial way that God changes you. Now, we're not just teaching you facts. We don't treat the Bible like trivia. For instance, I jokingly had a conversation this morning. This subject got brought up, so I thought I'll use this in reference. The fact that Solomon had 700 wives is never going to change your life. So when you teach your kids, don't teach them about... You can do it, but don't spend a lot of time there. Don't teach them simply the facts and the trivia of the Bible. If you teach Sunday school, let me help you. You're not in there to teach facts and trivia about the Bible because trivia will not change those kids. You can tell them Solomon had 700 wives, but again, it's not going to change them. What changes them is when we teach them the principles of God's wisdom. Because when they understand God's wisdom, now they know how to live. I'm teaching you how to. You need to stay with me. The things that are important in the Bible that we're supposed to teach you to make you into a disciple is the principles that God applies, the wisdom that God applies to all things. And let me give you an example in 1 Corinthians. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians, it was a train wreck of a church. They had more stuff going on than one pastor could possibly understand. I guarantee you that preacher was bald-headed because there was so much going on in that church, I don't know how in the world he could get a handle on it. One of the things that was going on in that church was sexual immorality and nobody was dealing with it. So Paul sits down and begins to speak to the church and he lays out countless principles in order that they understand just how bad sexual immorality in the church is. So let me show you this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know? Look down in chapter 6, verse 2. Do you not know? Look at verse 3. Do you not know? Look at verse 9. Or do you not know? Look in verse 15. Chapter 6. Do you not know? 16. Or do you not know? 19. Or do you not know? You see what he's doing? I'm teaching you something. Paul says, obviously, there's a ton of things that you have no clue about because there's sexual immorality in the church. And the very first thing that he addresses is all the way back up in 5-6. The first one, do you not know? He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? That is the first principle in regard to dealing with sexual immorality. And if you're dealing with immorality in your life right now, principle number one for you understanding how to get rid of it in your life is that principle right there. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. 
And you're like, how in the world does that help me with sexual immorality? Well, understand the principle. If there's any in your life, it's going to affect the whole of your life. If you got, well, I I just got this and it's small and I I contain it and I'm careful with it. And then this is the only part of immorality that I even allow in my life. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. That you think is little, it affects your whole life. And so the very first principle that Paul walks into in regard to the church, you think one man, and I won't call by a name, you think that one man dealing in sexual immorality is not going to affect the whole body? You don't understand the wisdom of God. Do you not know that a little leaven affects the whole lump of dough? Therefore, that's why we deal with sexual immorality in the church. Because if it goes on over here, pretty soon it'll be over here. And if it's over here, pretty soon it'll be right here. And pretty soon it'll be over here. Deal with it. And so in the wisdom of God, if there's any of it whatsoever in your life, deal with it because it'll ruin your whole life. You see, that's the wisdom of God. That's how God begins to deal with sin in our life. First, let me lay down the principle in order for you to understand the wisdom of God. Now this is the beautiful part. Now on your way back to Romans chapter 6... Because he's not dealing with anything particular. The principles that I'm going to teach you in Romans 6 is in regard to all sin. Every single bit of it. And so I don't care what particulars that you're dealing with in your life. Romans 6 applies to you and you need to imprint it and memorize it and put it and hide it in your heart. Because it's the first step for you understanding how to deal with sin in your life. So chapter 1 is going to be all principles. Do you not know? In fact, I think that's verse 2 of Romans 6. Do you not know? The second chapter in dealing with sin in your life, chapter 7, is the practice. We're going to go from principles to practice. We're actually going to learn to apply those things. And then the last chapter, chapter 8, interestingly enough, is the power. Now think about that order. Because where do we get the power to deal with sin in our life? From the Holy Spirit. Why wouldn't we deal with that first? No. You need the principles before you need the power. I'd give you a Spider-Man illustration, but Audrey would kill me for using a movie illustration. You've got to have the principles before you can practice, but don't worry about the practice of it because God's given you power to practice. See how this works? You've got to understand the wisdom And then as you begin to apply the wisdom, God says, don't worry, I've given you power in order that you might walk in the wisdom. So that's exactly how these chapters are laid out. Now, Romans chapter 6, let's turn to verse 1 and work our way through just a few passages. Notice the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase May it never be, how shall we who died to to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? And he's off and running with the first principle. But let's deal with the question. Because Paul, again, deals with this battle with sin with a question. And you've got to understand that Paul had to field all kinds of questions everywhere he went. Now reflect, and this will be important for us to understand. Paul was the guy that brought the gospel to the nations. Paul was the guy that introduced the gospel to the Gentiles. And everywhere he went to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, 
Paul first went to the synagogues to preach the gospel to the Jews because his heart was for his people. Now, Paul was not afforded the privilege that I'm afforded this morning. He didn't get to monologue for 45 minutes and people just sit there and listen to him and shake, shake their heads in agreement. No, it was an all-out debate, if not an argument, everywhere Paul went. So in other words, by the time Paul made one sentence to the Jews in the synagogue, they're already doing this right here. In fact, some of them are grumbling in the back, making noise. And this is how Paul had to preach the gospel. By the time he got to the second sentence, they were so offended in my mind, somebody's already standing up arguing with the Apostle Paul about what he just said. No, that can't be. And so it was a debate. But here's the beauty of the debate. Paul learned there are questions that I need to deal with because no matter where I go, these questions are going to be asked and people need to be able to say, oh, I know the answer to that. Paul's already explained to us the answer to that question. So Paul's in full debate mode, but notice the first question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And this is the fascinating thing. Just before I even get into the details, I find it absolutely fascinating that unconverted Jews are more concerned about sin than many in the church today. Let that sit with you for just a minute. Unconverted Jews are more concerned about sin than the majority of the American church is today. Which brings me to this point that I like to come to often. Any doctrine that's taught or any gospel that's preached that does not deal with sin and holiness is a lie. Let me say that again. Any doctrine that's taught or any gospel that's preached that does not deal with sin and holiness is a flat-out lie. And there are many of you that are going to go from here into other churches, whether that's you're visiting today or God moves you, and you're going to find yourself in a church. Give the guy about three weeks, four if you want to be gracious. And if the guy behind the pulpit doesn't hammer down on sin, pack up the kid's bag and leave. You're in the wrong place because sin is such a big issue. Listen, we just came out of justification by faith, the most glorious truth in all of the wisdom of God. And subject number one is sin. You're like, wait a minute, you just dealt with sin on Calvary. Why are we going to talk about sin? Because sin is such a part of your lives. And this is why I'm going to slow down when I get to Romans 6. It's like a part of 99.99% of y'all. Y'all have been justified by faith in Christ. Subject one, your sin. I'm about to really hit you where you all are, and I know that, and I really want to take a faithful swing at you and help you with your battle against sin. Sin is such a huge issue. And so Paul brings it to the forefront in his letter to the Romans. Now, here's the question back in verses 1 and 2. If Paul asked the Jews in the debate, what has God given you to help you deal with sin? What would be the Jews' response? The law. What do you mean? Oh, you don't understand, Paul. God has given us the law. And in the law, there's all these do's and all these don'ts. 
And so God gave us the law to suppress sin. And if we keep the law, then we can be justified by faith or justified by keeping the law. That's a wonderful plan. And it makes sense to us, right? Here's your list of do's. Here's your list of don'ts. That's really simple. And if you'll do these and avoid these, then you'll get to go to heaven. You do realize every religion on the planet is exactly that way. Save biblical Christianity. For instance, and I know I've told you this before, the last time I was in Thailand, Buddhism is 99.9% .9 of everyone, right? This is what I heard before the sun came up every morning. They blew a loud horn. He got on the speaker like the tornado siren out here at City Hall so the entire city could hear it. And he said five things, and of course these are my summary. Refrain from killing anyone. Don't steal. Avoid sexual immorality. Don't lie and avoid being unconscious. By that he means don't get drunk and do drugs. Unconsciousness leads to sin. And you're like, those are pretty good rules. I like those rules. You do understand they're justified by those laws. They're trying to suppress sin. And the way that they try to suppress sin is by giving laws and rules. Everybody does it. Legalistic churches do it. Though I think the women have felt the brunt of that. You can't wear makeup. You got to wear a dress. What are they doing? They're trying to suppress sin because they don't understand that God has put an end to sin through grace, not through law. But grace seems to free. If you just turn people loose in grace, they're going to act like fools. And I'll show you in just a minute. If that's the case, you never understood grace. But you see the danger in that. Because it seems like rules and laws will help us in our suppression of sin. We need do's and don'ts in order that we might not sin. But Paul says, no, no, no. Here's how the law works. Look back at Romans 5.20 and look what Paul said. Romans 5.20, Paul says, The law came in so that the transgression or the sin would increase. You know what law does? It magnifies your sin because it reveals your heart. You got children. You know how this works. Son, here's you a list of do's. These are the things I want you to do today. You know what wells up in that little heart? I ain't going to do it. Son, here's you another list. These are a list of don'ts. These are the things you cannot do today. You know what wells up in his heart? A little grin. I won't do it. Now you think they're sinful. Let me get to you. Because you're swollen, so swollen with pride, you're worse. How about I come over to your house and give you a, little, a few do's? Jonathan, let me pick on you. Jonathan, here's some things you need to start doing in your life. In his heart, he's kind. It would never be expressed on his face. But I know in his heart, if he's not in Jesus real quick, like you're like, huh, come over here and tell me what to do. Who does he think he is? I go to Michael's house. Michael said, listen, listen, hey, and this has happened to me before because it was in leadership to the church. And the guy was using horrible language publicly and he was in leadership in the church. And so I had a conversation with him. I said, brother, in, in all the kindness in the world, I said, listen, that can't be a part of your life. You've got to stop talking like that publicly. And his finger came up to my face. Don't you ever think that you can tell me what I'm supposed to do. That's the law. 
That's exactly how the law works. If you tell me how to do it or what not to do, in my heart I get angry. Who do you think you are? And so Paul says, where you think the law has suppressed sin, y'all have lost your mind. All that the law did was reveal your sin. God has done something else to suppress sin. Paul would say, grace is what God has given us because the more you sin, the more grace has gone over your sin. Grace has exceeded your sin. Now watch this. They laughed. Paul, I mean, son, do the math. If the law did not have the authority or the power to kill sin, how in the world do you think grace is going to accomplish it? Paul, listen to what you're saying. If you're saying the more we sin, the more extends God's grace, then if I want to magnify grace, all I have to do is what? Sin. Now hear me well, the Jews weren't into sin, they despised sin. They were doing this and saying this to mock the Apostle Paul. Because they would let like, Paul, your gospel is stupid. If you think you're going to defeat sin by grace, you're a lame brain. Just do the math. We can glorify God by sinning now, Paul. Is that what you're trying to teach us? But you do realize, by the way, there's a whole group of people that call themselves Christian that do that very thing. Very thing. They're called antinomians. That means anti-law. And so in order to enjoy their grace, they live however they want to live. Now rest assured, they're not in Christ. Because again, they don't understand the gospel. Now, here we go. And I'm just going to read this because it's so important for you to understand. The objection to grace alone in defeating sin arises from ignorance of the very gospel. Listen to this. How can the gospel which required the crucifixion of the Son of God for the sake of our sin and at the same time immerse us in the holiness of God at the very same time allow any room whatsoever for us to continue living in sin? The idea is foolish. Let me put it another way. If the very design of Christianity is to deliver you from your sin... It is an absolute contradiction to come to Christ in order to be delivered from sin so that you might go and continue to live in sin. See, if you think grace gives you room for sin, you don't understand the gospel. Jesus died for your sin. Are you really going to take that from Him and go and live in sin? I've struggled to give you an analogy of this, and the only thing that I could come up with is, is just to say, and if, if this story hits close to home, I apologize. I don't realize it or I wouldn't use this story. But let's just say a child gets drunk and they kill themselves in a car accident because they've been drinking alcohol. And you're going to go visit that family. And you know how broken, absolutely broken they are. But you want to buy them a gift, you know, something to cheer them up. And so what you do is you go by the liquor store and you get a 12-pack of beer and you set it on the kitchen table and say, hey, I just want to get you something to make you feel better. And you'd go, dude, you're an idiot. You're, you're an absolute idiot. Why did you do that? That makes, that makes zero sense. 
Now let's translate that into the gospel. You came to Christ to be delivered from sin. Are you really going to go back into sin? Because your sin warranted death. He saved you from death. He gave you life. And now you're going to go back in sin and death? Have you lost your mind? Do you not understand the gospel? You're doing the very thing for which He died. Why in the world would you ever go back and do the thing for which He was crucified? You don't understand the gospel. So if you get to the place in your life where you think, oh, we have grace, I can live how I want, you don't understand the gospel. If you get to the place where you're like, well, I can do this, I can do this, I'm saved by grace, I'm not saved by works, you don't understand the gospel. Because those are the very reasons that he died. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. May it never be. It's very emphatic. May it never be. So Paul asks the question, and let's turn the corner here. I need you to refresh yourself in some way because now I really I'm going to deal with the principle just a little bit. And I'll, I'll deal with it some more next week. But look at the second part of verse 2. Paul asks the question, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But we've got to ask a question before we answer that question. How in the world have we died to sin? How did you die to sin? Can I come across the room this morning and just say, how did you die to sin and ask you that question? Let me answer that question for you. But first, I've got to talk about death. I've got to define death. And you're like, really? I think I understand it. I don't think you ever think about it. Because if you thought about it, you'd understand the gospel better. You see, for death is the end of life. Death is the end of the whole life. Listen, death is the cessation or the ending from all activities, all associations, all relations of the whole man. It is the end of the whole man. You're like, I knew that. Yeah, but you haven't thought about it. Because you think about somebody in the grave, are they doing anything? Can they still whittle? Do y'all even know what that is? No, they can't do that. Do they still have a subscription to Netflix? No, they don't. They don't have that. Do they still have their phone number? No. It's the death of the whole man. Every relationship, every association, every activity. I don't care if you do spend 12 hours on your phone every day. When you die, that comes to an end. It is the end of of the whole man in death. You get that? Now he says through the gospel, you've died to sin. Hang on. Think about that. Every activity, every association, every relationship that you had to sin died and it's been removed. Just as you're put into the ground and you're removed from the kingdom of the world, when you've died in Christ, you've been removed from the kingdom of Satan. There are no more associations. There are no more relationships. Everything has been severed. It's been cut off. There's no continuation in activity. You get that? So what Paul is saying here, now look down in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. What does that mean? Well, we just explained death, but I'm pretty convinced that none of y'all have ever died. Not literally, not physically, but if you've come to faith in Christ, you have died. In fact, you've been baptized into His death, meaning you've been made one with Christ. We're back to the idea of union. You see, when you were baptized, and I'll talk more about this next week. I'm going to cut this part out so we can move on. Baptism is nothing more than shorthand for conversion here. He's saying when you were converted and came into relationship with Christ, you came into a union with Christ. Therefore, you were baptized into His death. You were made one with Christ in His death. There's a guy, Leon Morris, that makes a whole list of these things. Listen, at all these things that you share with the Lord Jesus Christ because you've been made one with Christ. Listen to this. You were crucified with Him. You died with Him. You were buried with Him. You were made alive with Him. You were raised with Him. You were made to sit with Him in the heavenly places. You're co-heirs with Him. You share glory with Him. And you will reign with Him. You see why you got to understand five to understand six? When you were converted, you were made one with Christ. When He died, you died. Now look at verse 4. Therefore, and I'm going to wind it down. I know you're about done. Listen. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He says the same thing again in verse 5. For if we have become united, there's your union, with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. Now you think about that line that I drew when we first start. Sin, death, condemnation. When you joined Christ or when you wed Christ through the gospel, that was forever cut. You have no relationship with any of those three words at all in your life. All activities have been ended. You died. But when you came to faith in Christ, not only did He die, But He was buried and He was raised. And when He drew that new line of life and righteousness and justification, you were tied in that same line. And those are the only words now that define your life. And when He talks about this idea, uh, back down in verse 6, the old self was crucified with Him. The body of sin might be done away with. You know what He's talking about there? He's talking about your former union in Adam. And remember Adam? He's the reason you're a sinner. He he was the unfaithful husband that carried his whole family over into captivity. 
But when you died with Christ, that relationship was severed. And you have nothing to do with that anymore. That's the old man. That's the old body. That's the sin. Now you've been united to Christ and you have a new husband. And He set you free from all of that. Now, I know you don't understand it, but I'm going to continue to preach this over the next few weeks. And I think when you finally get it, I won't be able to keep you down in your seat. You've been freed from sin. Let me say that again. You've been set free. It has nothing to do with you anymore. Just as a man who lies in the grave has nothing to do with life anymore... You have nothing to do with death anymore because your new line that's been drawn for you is life and righteousness and justification. Those are the only things that you have relationship with anymore. You don't have a relationship with Adam anymore. You don't have a relationship with sin anymore. Legally, it's binding in the wisdom of God. I cease to have any sort of activity or relationship with sin anymore because I'm in Christ. And when He died, He broke that relationship that I had with Adam. Now, chapter 7, I want to keep going because I want you to get this. But again, I'm going to work on this for weeks ahead. How do you end the marriage covenant? We say it every wedding. How How do you end it? Until death do you part. And when Christ died, you were right there in Him and with Him. When He was crucified, you were crucified with Him. When they put Him in the ground, you were there with Him. And when He died, you died, and you severed that first marriage. It was cut off. It does not define my life anymore. Covenant broke. But He didn't just die, and He didn't just was buried. He was raised. And so when He was raised, you were raised in Him. And now there is newness of life. And you have this idea, I'm going to go, you have this idea that I've got a little old and I've got a little new and I've got a devil here and I've got an angel here. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. If you think I got a little old and I got a little new and I got a little sin and I got a little holiness, you don't understand the gospel. The old man, the devil, and all of that that had all those relationships with you, all of that's died and it's buried and the covenant's broken and you've been set free. It's like being a part of the worst marriage on the planet. And then the old man dies and the widow raises her hand and says, Praise God, I'm out of that mess. And she finds a new husband, and he's absolutely wonderful in every way, and all he does is protect and provide for her on day in. You're like, praise God, I found a good husband. That's what happened to your sin. It has nothing to do with you anymore. The only thing that has anything to do with you anymore is this new life that you have in Christ. Let's pray.